Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Theodora Donison, and I'm an internal medicine resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, and a Cardio Nerds Academy fellow in House Tausig. Welcome back to our seven-episode nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series with Cleveland Clinic imaging expert Dr. Wyle Jaber and future imager Dr. Erica Hutt, as well as Brigham imaging fellow Dr. Aldo Schenone. Be sure to check out episode 99 and 101, in which we discuss the evaluation of coronary ischemia and coronary microvascular disease. In this third part, we learn about the multimodality evaluation for myocardial viability. Stay tuned for future episodes where we will cover anomalous coronary anatomies, cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac amyloidosis, and prosthetic valve infections. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Now, if you recall from the last episode, Ahmed set the stage in the Cardio Nerds version of The Odyssey. We're just about to get the treadmill spect results back for Eurymachus and learn about looking for signs of life versus signs of death as we go on the hunt for myocardial viability. Eurymachus had his treadmill spect, which showed a large fixed circumflex territory defect and a resting left ventricular ejection fraction of 35%. Given ongoing occasional and very lifestyle limiting anginal complaints, he undergoes coronary angiography, which shows a proximal circumflex CTO, chronic total occlusion. So now we're faced with a question of what to do next with respect to revascularization. And, you know, I'm reminded of a quote, Hefe, that you offered while teaching us about PET scans to detect hibernating myocardium on cardiac imaging agora. And I'll quote, all normal hearts are normal in the same way, and all abnormal hearts are abnormal in different ways, by adapted from Tolstoy in his novel, Anna Karenina. So, Hefe, when do you consider viability testing? How does nuclear imaging help us here? And what the heck does this all have to do with Tolstoy and Anna Karenina? Well, uh, thank you again. I, when I say these things, I sometimes think nobody is listening. But this is actually the opening quote from the from the book. If you have read the book, and this is a book I think it's extremely important to read because, as you will know, in Tolstoy's books, uh, they're very big and they're door stoppers. Uh, but uh, they don't take one uh, storyline and follow it. They take multiple storylines and follow them, and they show you how love or life uh, can be lived differently by different people and without any judgment sometimes or with judgment. Uh, so that's the beauty about these quotes. And uh, I think normal, happy lives are often uh, not exciting, and there is nothing much to explore there. And similarly, uh, a ventricle with ejection fraction of 60 65% at rest or post-stress those ventricles actually are normal and usually doing more exploration into what's going on with these ventricles is uh, is not satisfying or can lead you uh, to places where there is nothing, no findings there. So to link back this to uh, what we talked about earlier, which is uh, myocardial hibernation, you should not consider evaluation of myocardial hibernation in a person who has first normal coronary arteries because you're not going to do anything with that information. 
uh, if you have established the anatomy to be normal, assessment for hibernation is not indicated. A second population where you should not look for uh, hibernation is patients who have obstructive coronary disease that is uh, severe but not revascularizable. So if you have a patient with diffuse multivessel disease that's not, the disease is not amenable for revascularization, I think you can do it for academic purposes, but for helping the patient or guiding therapy, I don't think that's relevant. And the third population where uh, you should not look for uh, hibernation is a person who's coming in with an EF on echocardiography or angiography or MRI of uh, 55%, 60%, 50% even, which leaves us with when do we look for it? And we look for it in patients where you have coronary artery disease, you've established that, whether it's uh, CTA or uh, invasive coronary angiography. The coronary disease is suitable for revascularization, and then you have an ejection fraction that is depressed. So now you're, the aim for revascularization is first to make sure you're not revascularizing dead myocardium. And the second aim, hopeful aim, is to improve that ejection fraction uh, from, let's say, 30% to 45 50% by revascularizing the myocardium. Again, these are aspirational things. These are not certainties. And the third reason you want to do that is to, of course, improve survival. And again, these three aims have been, even in 2021, Although, you know, we do it all the time, the, the data behind them is either single center or multi-center registries or uh, meta-analyses. So we don't have really a solid randomized 10,000 patients, 20,000 patient clinical trial to back these aims. So Dr. Jaber, along these lines, can you help us define hibernation versus stunning? And how does PET help us with that? So thank you. So uh, Erica, the concept of myocardial hibernation came up a long time ago with a paper, actually a single patient paper reported in CIRC by uh, Ramatullah from UCLA. And they took a patient who had a depressed LV ejection fraction, coronary artery disease. And it's interesting to look at that cartoon. So they took this patient, you know, basically they assessed the ejection fraction by uh, invasive angiography, LV gram, and then uh, they revascularized the patient and then they did an LV gram down the road and they showed that this ejection fraction has improved. So he introduced with this the concept of myocardial hibernation. So myocardial hibernation in uh, contrast to stunning very simply, stunning is uh, repetitive or uh, single time drop in myocardial blood flow, leading to sudden cessation of contractile function, which is uh, uh, reversible once you take that insult away before you have an infarct. Hibernation is a more of a chronic process. You know, this is a myocardium that has been exposed to chronic and sustained reduction in myocardial uh, blood flow. And over time, hibernation is not a fixed point. Hibernation is a dynamic point. So you start sometimes with stunning. If you don't reestablish blood flow, you will start with losing contractile function. Then you start over time with losing some of the contractile elements of the cell, and then ultimately the cell will die. So this is a spectrum uh, of disease. And that's what makes it very hard to prove in clinical trials that, that reestablishing blood flow to hibernating myocardium helps because not all these phenotypic expressions of hibernation by, let's say, nuclear or dobutamine echo or uh, MRI are the same. So to take that one step further, when you're deploying nuclear technology such as PET, FTG, all you're trying to establish whether the cell is still using glucose or not. So the cell is alive because it's using glucose. If you're using thallium, for example, you're establishing that the cell membrane is still intact to allow that sodium-potassium ATPase to function. 
And when you're using a dopamine echo, you are trying to establish whether the contractile elements of the cell are still there by flagging it with some dopamine to make it uh, contract at low dose. So that's why we have these discrepancies in establishing what hibernation is by different imaging modalities. Besides, the, the disease itself is a wide spectrum of manifestations of decreased blood flow to the cell, all the way from the depression of contractility of the cell to uh, basically having some FTG or glucose uptake or glucose utilization of the cell without any preservation of contractile elements of the cell. Wow, that's so interesting. And I find it very, very amazing that we're able to image the physiology of what's going on inside the cell. And that's why I think I'm very passionate about nuclear. And so you mentioned at the clinic, we have FDG and we have a cyclotron on site. So we're a little bit spoiled, but what if we don't have FDG? What are other modalities where we can assess viability? You mentioned the butamine echo and then thallium. How does thallium work and why don't we use it? So we we are, of course, fortunate and more places right now have access to FDG. Uh, FDG have a relatively longer half-life. So you can actually, if you have a cyclotron in a university center next to you or uh, down the street, you can have access to it as long as you have a PET machine to image. There are some centers that image FDG have adapted their SPECT camera to image FDG, but that's rare and infrequent. If we go to the basics, just let's start from the basic things before we jump into thallium. So one of the best tools I think you have, and Aldo and Amit has probably have heard me saying that probably a million times now, to assess for presence or absence of uh, wall death or segmental death in the myocardium is uh, echocardiography. So if you have a good echocardiogram and you have a, a wall, let's say the inferior wall, for example, that inferior wall is thinned out, bright, scarred, measuring less than five millimeters in thickness. The likelihood of this wall recovering function or uh, being alive, and this has been demonstrated many times before from studies from uh, Houston, from Quinones and his group back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that wall that is less than five millimeters in thickness has probably a 90% chance of being dead and will never recover function. So the specificity of a thin wall for uh, scar is extremely high. Now, you might find a paper saying, oh, we did an MRI on these patients and we find that there are some islets of uh, myocardium there. That's okay, but it doesn't mean that if you go and revascularize this wall, that wall is going to contract and become normal. So this is extremely important for cardiology group. And, you know, looking at these things is never to rely on the report itself. Uh, Use the report as just as an introduction to the image and go and look at the images yourself. And if you look at the images yourself and you see a big, aneurysmal, thinned out wall of the left ventricle, uh, let's say the apex in an LAD situation, that is not a wall that you will have to go after by ordering pets or dobitamine or whatever to look for hibernation. So this is the resting echo part. Now, to answer your question about thallium. So thallium is, again, we talked about it earlier. Thallium is a potassium analog, right? And it uses the sodium-potassium ATPase across the cell membrane to enter the cell. So what you do is you inject the patient with thallium. It has a very long half-life, a couple of days, and low energy, 68 keV, in contrast to technetium, which has a 144 keV energy. And then you image the patient. So what you see initially in the first image is you see the walls that are normal will have thallium uptake uh, very well. And the walls that are, let's say, hibernating or scarred will have no thallium uptake. So the next step is to uh, re-image those patients at 24 hours, let's say, because it has a long half-life. 
And by re-imaging at 24 hours, you're allowing for some of the thallium to seep in into the areas that are at rest, at least in the initial image, were uh, dark or did not pick up thallium. So over time, right, over the 24-hour period, because of equilibrium and stuff like that, so that more of these slow uptake cells will allow some thallium in if they're still alive. And then the second image is compared to the first image on day one. And then you can see if these areas have now thallium uptake in them, that you call hibernating myocardium. The other way to do it is to re-inject the second day. So the next day before you image the patient, re-inject thallium again, and then assess again for the similar phenomenon, which is do we have right now more uptake in these cells that were at rest or the first day were uh, dark? So the sensitivity of that to pick up uh, hibernation is extremely modest. Reports say it's anywhere between 30 and 50% as compared to, let's say, to FDG. So if you are looking for specificity, that's extremely high, but sensitivity is extremely low. Most places have abandoned doing that. It's a very cumbersome technique. You have to bring the patient twice. You have to inject them with thallium, which is uh, exposing them to tons of radiation, right? And you're basically going to get very modest sensitivity. So even thallium in its utilization for ischemia evaluation without hibernation, let's say, for example, that has been abandoned in most centers over the past probably uh, decade or so. Very few centers right now still use thallium. And even American Society of Nuclear Cardiology has discouraged the use of thallium to limit radiation to patients. So this is the, uh, the thallium story. The third story is, uh, besides echo thallium, is the story of technetium systemibi, which is we use as a perfusion agent. So some centers, uh, what they do is they image the patient at rest with systemibi, and what they will do is they will give the patient nitroglycerin to now vasodilate those vessels that were not vasodilated at rest, and then re-image the patient again. So this is a post-nitroglycerin evaluation of the myocardium. And again, the same hypothesis works or the same idea of assessing hibernation where at rest, you have an area that's dark, not picking up technetium. And post-nitrates, you can enhance the flow in the segments that are still viable. And then you pick up some uptake in those segments in the second image. Again, we have not done that. I think I've done that probably once or twice years ago when we were moving from one building to another and the cyclotron was not working for a couple of days, but we have not done that. Very few places do that. So we're left again with, uh, as, far, as far as the nuclear technique right now, with the SPET FTG. That was great, Hefe. And the conversation so far really underscores that quote about how abnormal hearts are abnormal in different ways, right? Because just the spectrum of why an abnormal myocardial segment may not be functioning well, you know, you think about ischemia, scar, hibernation, stunning, and you also outline just within hibernation alone, the range of phenotypes within that pathophysiology. But, you know, the pathophysiology aside, these concepts are so incredibly important at the bedside, right, for the patient, what it means for them in terms of their symptoms and their quality of life and their longevity. So many times, patients with classic coronary syndromes are told that they have no revascularization options after some sort of myocardial perfusion imaging shows a fixed defect. But now we're realizing that, hey, that can mean one of two things, right? Either it's dead right? It's scarred. And so, you know, we focus on medical therapy and secondary and tertiary prevention, or as we're talking about right now, it's hibernating and potentially salvageable. So viability testing with subsequent revascularization most definitely seems intuitive and rational, right? But Hefe, is there data to support this approach? So I, I came to this field, I think in 1998, 99, uh, as an agnostic. The dogma back then, 
was that if you have less than 50% of the normal uptake, so you compare a segment that's abnormal to a segment that's normal in the myocardium, and if you have less than 50% uptake in that segment, that means that cell or that segment is dead and you shouldn't pursue hibernation. This came from some data on SPECT or thallium, as Erica mentioned earlier. So I came to that as an agnostic. I said, you know, this is, you mentioned this omit. This patient has a fixed defect in, let's say, in the inferior wall, at rest and post-stress. There's nothing to go after here. It's less than 50% uptake in the normal segments. And then we stop here and we treat medically. And over time, actually, my colleagues here challenged these ideas or these uh, concepts or dogmas you have. So I was shown many cases when I first started at the Cleveland Clinic back in the late 90s by showing me cases where there is a fixed defect and they did an FDG on these patients and, well, that segment uh, lit up. So over time, I think we were faced with new facts. And uh, if you're faced with new facts, it's important that you change your mind and not live in the past. So my concept or understanding of that has evolved over the past 22 years plus. So to go back to that issue of empirical use of this, what we do every day, you and I and Erica and Aldo versus what's in the literature, it is very intuitive. The data on myocardial hibernation value for revascularization, the biggest data set is from Allman and his group. They did a meta-analysis, but the meta-analysis that's often reported in literature showing the benefit of revascularizing hibernating myocardium came from a hodgepodge of PET, SPECT, dobutamine, ECHO, and so on and so forth. So these are all groups of patients from multiple centers. They did a meta-analysis. It started the conversation. Dr. DeCarli from Aldo's institution, current institution, had a small study also exclusively on PET back in the late 90s, a uh, single center uh, study, also showing the value of myocardial hibernation using PET. But the issue remains is, do we have a randomized clinical trial? The only one that is really was done rigorously, and it's a randomized clinical trial using PET alone, is the PAR2 study, P-A-R-R-2 study, that comes from the Ottawa group in Canada. They randomized patients to a PET strategy where basically they looked for hibernation versus a clinical strategy for revascularization. And overall, the PET versus clinical decision-making for revascularization did not lead to improved outcomes. This is a group less than 500 patients divided into a group of PET-led revascularization versus clinical-led revascularization. Now, this is on the face of it, on the surface of it. This was what they found. Again, clinical practice does not follow the rationale of clinical trials very often. So now within that study, the PAR2 study, when they looked at patients where actually the physician adhered to the recommendation of PET, let's say the PET said the patient does not have any hibernating myocardium and that patient was not revascularized or the converse, PET said the patient has hibernating myocardium and the patient was revascularized. When the PET recommendation was adhered to by the revascularizing physician, the PET offered a significant improvement in the outcomes. So it doesn't matter if you do the test. The most important things do you adhere to recommendation of the test. So if you do the test and not adhere to the recommendations of the test, then probably you're not going to see the benefits from it. So that's, again, the, the difference between clinical practice and uh, randomized trials. Now, the reason they didn't adhere to what the PET recommended is not because they were bad doctors. They were excellent doctors. But the reason is, as I said in the opening statement in this discussion about hibernating myocardium, maybe they didn't have access to the images to figure out if the patient is suitable for revascularization or not, right? So you went, you assessed for hibernation, and then you looked at the cat and said, oh, there is a lot of hibernation, but my God, this CERC coronary disease that's there where we have hibernation is not it's not suitable for revascularization. It's totally occluded CERC, horrible uh, collateral, something like that. So 
there was something in the anatomy of the patient or the substrate that did not allow them to follow the PET results. So this is the only trial that's there for that. All the other uh, so-called trials that looked for hibernation did not include PET or MRI in that. So if you look at Let's say for the ischemia trial, if you want to, if you want to open that subject, which was not a hibernating trial, but in those very few patients who had uh, PET or MRI for assessment of ischemia, if you look for the uh, STITCH trial, in that trial, the assessment for hibernation was not randomized. It was left to the discretion of the physician. And the other thing about the STITCH trial is uh, they used resting specs, resting echoes, uh, dobutamine echo, uh, hodgepodge of things to uh, decide whether to revascularize the patients or not. But again, it wasn't randomized and it did not use PET or MRI. Thank you, Hefe. That was actually a great description. And I now have a much better understanding of what is the value of using uh, PET for viability assessment and outcomes. But now I want to ask Aldo a question. Aldo, why don't you tell us a little bit more about other imaging modalities where we can assess viability, like, for example, CMR using late gadolinium enhancement? Absolutely, Erica. I think before we dive into some of the other modalities, and particularly MRI, I think it's important to understand that the same way that we discuss evaluation in patients with CAD is that we have to uh, adjust our approach to the patient. In a patient-centered imaging, we need to go through kind of who is the patient we're trying to image, uh, what are the comorbidities, what will be the contraindication for each of the modalities, and what imaging modalities the patient had before that could help us. You know, a new imaging modality could be complementary to it. So I think, again, in trying to adjust the modality to the patient at hand. As we discussed a little bit uh, already, and, and El Jefe already gave uh, kind of an outstanding explanation and in-depth uh, description of how nuclear works and, and some of the, the pearls on, on echo, uh, we can assess viability all the way from resting echo, stress echo with the butamine, you know, nuclear with the different ways of doing that and MRI. And even some folk has said that CT could maybe be of help in the future. I think the important thing is as clinician and as a multimodality imagers, I think it's important that, you know, we should gather all the pieces of information that we get from all the modalities that we have when we're making this decision in a patient that could benefit from uh, potential revascularization. And when I say that, I just want to reemphasize some of the concepts that I'll have already kind of explained is that every patient now that gets admitted to the hospital and, and is going to work up for potential revascularization, an echo is always obtained, a resting echo. And I think it's important to look at that primary data and, and see what's the EF of these patients, patients that would benefit from, again, pursuing hibernation or viability workup and revascularization in the right context and looking at the walls. I, we know that those walls that are very thin out and hyperechogenic, they're, you know, dyskinetic and or akinetic. Those segments are unlikely to really recover function if you were to open the vessel that supplies blood to, to that area. And, and I think that you already kind of in a multimodality way, already kind of getting some of the pieces of the puzzle that you're going to then reconcile later. Having said that, I think I have already touched upon that. Although the vast majority of these segments do not come back, I think it has been quoted that around one in five uh, of these thin segment selected group of patients, an MRI might show that there's no LGE and, and in consequence, the, the function and the thickness might come back. But again, the overall concept is that the vast majority don't do that and only in a few does it. So you need to really get all the information and, and reconcile it. So now, moving from the resting echo, I think it's important to know then, I mean, the other option from an echocardiography standpoint is doing dobutamine uh, stress echo. And as we already mentioned, I mean, the whole idea of a stress echo is that 
We're trying to prove that there are cells that are alive in those areas that are hypokinetic or akinetic that have a contractile reserve. And what we do is just you start with low doses of the amine and you slowly go up. And you're going to see that areas of macaron might recover the contractility function. So they improve the contraction. Uh, and as you continue to increase the doses, then they get ischemic again, and then just they go back to be dysfunctional again. So that biphase or that kind of response of getting better and then getting worse is a, is a pretty classic description of a segment that is viable and might kind of improve if you revascularize. I think the good thing about stress echo and with this kind of, or the butamine echo with this way of doing it is that it's very specific. If you see these, is you know that this patient most likely is going to recover. However, the sensitivity is in the 70s. But again, it's a great tool in patients that you're trying to avoid radiation, and it's a great tool when you have kind of no access to some of the more advanced techniques. Now, moving along into kind of nuclear, I think we already got a, an exemplary talk about this thing, and you can do all the way from looking at the number of counts of rest, what happened with the rest counts when you give nitroglycerin and in a way to try to estimate if there's a cells that are alive that can pick up the tracer. And as Ahmed already alluded to, uh, I mean, you're in this case, in nuclear, what you're looking at is just, is the membrane of the cell uh, intact and the cells are alive, they're able to pick up the tracer and retain it. And then you kind of see it in, in the camera. And you can do that, as I said, in resting counts, uh, given nitro to enhance that with talium, which is our kind of not necessarily the typical way of looking for viability in hibernation uh, these days. Uh, there are options if you don't have access to kind of a PET and FTG. But I guess the gold standard from a nuclear standpoint is, is FTG, as, we, as very well described. Now, moving into kind of what I think the alternative technique to PET is, is, is cardiac MRI. Cardiac MRI is a great technique to look for presence of residual viability. As we talked before, the MRI provides you with a, a large amount of data, all the way from what's the EF of the patient, what's the, the volume. And those are important from a prognosis standpoint, because maybe you see an area of scar or the dyskinesis, but it's just, you know, two segments, but the ventricle is completely remodeled, it's, it's huge, uh, dysfunctional. And you know that maybe, you know, revascularizing that area might not be meaningful. So it not only provides you with, as we're going to see in terms of residual viability in segments, but also a big picture of how the, the health of the ventricle is. And, and, you know, if you have just purely ischemic versus kind of combined non-ischemic and ischemic that we often see in complex patients. We can see about, again, similar to echo, look at the wall thinning and see if those areas are dyskinetic or akinetic. I mean, some folks have shown that, you know, again, similar to echo, if your wall thickness is less than 5, you know, 5.5 then your functional recovery is unlikely. But I think the key of MRI is the LGE. Compared to PET, in which you're showing up or what really lights up is the cells that are alive, where you're looking in MRI is you're actually looking at the LGE, which is basically the area of the myocardium that is, is, is scar. And you can see the scar segment and you can see what's, what remains as a normal myocardium. And the way that you see that, let's say if you're looking at the inferior wall, and as we know, you know, all the infrared start from the subendocardium and extend towards the epicardium, you can quantify not only the extent, how many segments, but also the transmolarity of the damage. So how much of the wall thickness is already affected and, and shows LGE suggesting that that scar. And the way that we do it in MRI is we just basically quantify that and we say, well, I think that in that segment, I don't see any LGE. So that suggests that that segment, even though it's dyskinetic or it's hyperkinetic or akinetic, and you have a vessel that is occluded, that segment has all the possibilities. And data has shown that in those cases, 
greater than 80% of cases, that segment recovers, which there's no LG has been no significant damage. And, and then you can go in quartiles, so you can say no LGE, less than 25%, 25 to 50, 50 to 75, or 75 to 100. And, and based on that, you get an idea. Just to give you an example, anything that has, any segment has, you know, 50 or more, I think the chances of that segment coming back and recovering after vascularization is, is pretty small. We're talking about around 10% or so. In the other extreme or spectrum, as we already uh, alluded to, if you have no LGE or your LGE is less than 25% of the wall thickness, I mean, you, your chances of, of getting a, a recovery of the wall in terms of function is good. It's, we're talking about, you know, uh, over 60%. The challenge are where, where you are in this patient that is in 25 to 50%, which is, again, the gray zone. And uh, I guess what? This is a, a very often a scenario in which, as a clinician, you're debating like, okay, I, I'm willing to go for this, even though that you have a kind of a run of 50% chance of, of getting a recovery. And, and all this has to do in how you see your patient. Is that patient that is young that, you know, even though I'm willing to kind of gamble and, and just give it the chance uh, in going through a procedure, a procedure is going to be simple compared to kind of necessarily like, you know, an older patient is not doing too much. And I mean, it's a very complex and nasty uh, intervention that is going to need to be done. So, so you know, you pick your chances there in, in, a, in a risk benefit ratio analysis. The other way you can go about this, and that's the beauty of MRI, is that, you know, you can always, in addition to, as a step up from the LGE, you can also do a little bit of a dobutamine challenge similar to the stress echo, in which you identify there's a segment that is perhaps 25 to 50%. You're not sure you're at the, at the edge. You can say, well, let's do a little bit of the load dose dobutamine. And by doing so, you can assess if that segment can really improve and, and increase contractility. And if you see that, then that resembles what we discussed with the, the vitamin echo that really tells you that if that segment improved, then this is, is, is very specific to see that that, that segment is going to recover. So, you know, it's a very comprehensive assessment of the ventricle viability and, and capacity to augment contraction that we can do with cardiac MRI. The other thing is that, you know, again, nowadays with the improvement of stress CMR, I mean, in some folks has sometimes advocate just to do everything in a single test. Let's say you have a patient that have, you know, concern for ischemia, but also you want to look for, for viability and, and so forth. So you can, in those patients that are appropriate for CMR, you can do everything in one test. You can just do an stress MR with first pass perfusion with the, with the gadolinium and then also at the same time address for presence of viability. And, and you can see if the perfusion defects only match those areas of LGE or they are expand. So you, you can get a really nice and comprehensive assessment of what's ischemic, what's uh, scar out, and what might be uh, viable or not. So, so MRI is becoming a really powerful uh, technique that can help us with that. Just a, a little blurb on CT. I don't think anyone uses CT nowadays for this purpose. Many of these patients has some sort of either chest CT or pyocardic CT. I think it's important as a clinician and the imagers to take a look. Often in just regular CT, we can see that walls are thin out the same way. You have kind of fatty metaplasia as, as a way of prior injury, which, you know, kind of expand through the whole wall. So you can get a, a flavor of, of what you're going to look uh, or what you're going to have in this patient looking at these. But definitely CT is not necessarily a go-to for, for this thing. Maybe in the future for some of the tissue characterization with delay iodine enhancement, but this is in the investigational realm right now. So I guess how you pick your modality, I think you have to kind of ask yourself, what are you looking for? Are you looking for high sensitivity, high specificity? What's my positive predictive value, negative predictive value? Uh, I can tell you that, you know, uh, the winners would be PET and CMR. 
PET is a highly sensitive technique with uh, up to 92% sensitivity. Uh, however, the specificity uh, sometimes might not be at the top, although kind of is good. On the other side, CMR, especially if you do LDE and dobutamine, it really provides you kind of with sensitivities that are comparable to PET and you can get a little bit of a squeeze on, on the specificity, especially if you do the, the dobutamine part of it. So Again, you put this in perspective, you, you pull the initial data in a patient that you think would benefit from revascularization, and, and it's important to look for presence of viability, and then you can pick from any of these modality complementary techniques. I think one thing that I want to say that is important, especially in the acute setting, we need to understand the weaknesses of each of the modalities. So let's say we have a patient that comes in with a new event, it's, it's relatively fresh. We all know that in the, in the acute setting, you're going to have some degree of inflammation within the myocardium. So it's important to understand that when you do PET, and, and we know that they were trying to make sure that that FTG gets into the cells. But if there's inflammation, some of that FTG, which is a glucose analog, might get into some of the inflammatory cells. So as a, as a rule of thumb, we might overestimate a little bit the presence of viability in the center of an acute MI. In contrast, CMR, it not only scar gives you LGE, inflammation can also give you a little bit of LGE because you have an expansion of the extracellular space. So CMR, in contrast, can give you an underestimation of viability because you're going to see there's a lot of LGE, but some of that might be inflammation. So in the acute setting, they can even be complementary in really complex and really complicated cases. But I think that's another concept that is important to have in mind. Wow, Eldo, that was just beautiful. And I, I just I so miss learning from you. This is kind of shifting how I think about viability testing, listening to you and Hefe. And I'm, I'm beginning to think about it as either looking for signs of death or looking for signs of life, right? So for looking for signs of death, we use CMR with LGE, where gadolinium gets stuck in areas of death and destruction. And so as it gets stuck, you continue to have late or delayed enhancement. On the other hand, looking for signs of life you know, instead of NASA looking for signs of life on Mars, it's cardiners looking for signs of life in the myocardium. And we look at different features of being alive, of vitality, right? And so for dibutamine echo or dibutamine MRI, we're looking for contractile reserve as a sign of life. With thallium, which, you know, we probably don't use as much anymore here, we're looking for signs of membrane integrity as a sign of life. And for PET viability, FDG PET, we're looking for signs of metabolic activity as a sign of life. And so, you know, thinking about it within that perspective, at least helps me organize my thoughts in terms of why viability testing works. And then within that construct, I really appreciate the discussion of, you know, sensitivity, specificity, the strengths of different modalities, and especially the caveats and the nuances, right? So, you know, not looking right after an MI and things like this. And so this is where, you know, having a multidisciplinary team with cardiovascular imaging experts can be really helpful. Is, is that fair, Aldo? Absolutely. I think you nailed it. I think that's a kind of a brilliant summary of the discussion. I think it's absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, as you said, it's just the integration of data, integration of teams. I think that's, that's essential. Great. Thanks. And now, I, you know, I have something to admit that's a little embarrassing. When I was uh, first reading about viability testing and I came across Hefe's uh, quote from Tolstoy about abnormal hearts being abnormal in different ways, I got kind of excited because I thought, wow, Tolstoy is talking about abnormal hearts. Was he the original cardio nerd? And, and, uh, and then I went and I looked it up and, and the actual quote is that happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And so it's just a reminder to myself to be a little bit more in touch with literature. It's uh, something I get from Hefe all the time. Oh, you're in touch with a lot of things, but you know, I, I love the way you I love the way you put it. I never thought about it as this this uh, 
almost poetic way, signs of life versus signs of uh, of death. I'm glad the nuclear part is looking for signs of life. Where And that actually translates into optimism versus pessimism. I think pet imaging can err on the size of optimism. So because it's such a sensitive technique, uh, it can pick up signs of life where if you, the end point is improvement in contractility of the myocardium, or recovery of LV function, that can be elusive because it's looking for faint signs of life. On the other hand, the the beauty of, let's say, something like MRI with its much better spatial resolution, of course, uh, ability to interrogate a transmural uh, infarcts versus uh, subendocardial infarcts. That, again, is uh, it errs probably on the size of uh, pessimism because what you have with that or with dobutamine echo is you're looking for an endpoint, which is resumption of contractility and improvement in the remodeling process. And therefore, uh, it's on that spectrum. So this is a beautiful way of doing it. Actually, I'm going to use, if you don't mind, use this in the future for my thought organization and uh, teaching. <laughs> Honored. That was such a great discussion about multimodality imaging to investigate for myocardial viability. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode in the series as we explore abnormal coronary anatomies, including anomalous coronaries and myocardial bridging. Thank <laughs> you.